Welcome to No Show. I'm Matt Brown. I'm joined by Jeff Borman. And before we tell you a little bit about what this brand new podcast is going to be, uh, we want to tell you a little bit about ourselves just to get that out of the way right up front. And then we never have to talk about it again. Uh, I've known Jeff for years and, and we've had long conversations. Some might say too long over that time about the mechanics around uh, hotels and travel. And I was drawn to the idea of this podcast because I'm fascinated with that intersection of design and architecture and place and emotion and memory. And, and I think when we travel, we, we sort of pass through those intersections and have these really unique experiences. And they're made possible by this huge machine that's working underneath to, to make those things possible. And I think that's hopefully what we're going to talk about a little bit. Right, Jeff? I can't wait. Uh, my career journey's gone from short order cook to commercial leader for the biggest brands in hospitality. So in my 20 plus years, I have some operations experience, but mostly in the business functions of revenue management, pricing, sales, distribution strategies, that kind of thing. So when, I, when I'm not helping the travel industry as an employee, I'm supporting it as a customer, traveling around the world, hiking, dining, mingling with people and, uh, it's the biggest passion of my life has been since I've been a teenager. And, and the, the no show, you know, okay. So what are we going to talk about? And, and, you know, we, we talked all summer before the show about what this is going to be. And uh, you know, I, I, we settled on, on kind of the idea uh, as, as we're starting this thing out, that we are going to take an important subject in the travel industry. And we're going to kind of explain what's really happening under the hood. And we're not going to get too crazy about it. I think people who don't really know that much about travel will be able to kind of key into it, but it's also built for people who've been in, in different parts of the industry for years and maybe want to find out a little bit more about one thing or another. Most often what we're going to talk about is something related to hospitality. Uh, but in the case of this uh, inaugural episode, the subject uh, perhaps getting the most attention in travel media is, is that of health passes. And, uh, you know, the passes that will allow people to cross borders, check in at hotels, maybe even get into concert venues, museums or baseball games. I live in New York City. Jeff lives in the D.C. area. Uh, both of those areas are, are really conscious about this. And, and we're, we're seeing I mean, everywhere is. But I think we're, we're in, in places that that debate is going on all the time, it seems. And every day there's a flurry of articles about how the hotel and travel industry are trying to rebound and readjust uh, to COVID era life. And when there's talk about speeding up that rebound, the topic invariably comes back to vaccine passports of one kind or another and why they're so hard for a decentralized system like the U.S. to, to, to actualize. Uh, clear is one of the names that you hear a lot uh, when you start talking, when you start getting into these waters. Um, and they've got a really good start in this because of their partnership with the TSA, uh, you know, after 9-11 uh, to access people's records from various, you know, uh, federal security agencies. So TSA, CIA, FBI, et cetera, clear, uh, you know, isn't the only one trying to win this game. Uh, American Airlines was kind of pushing verify this summer with mixed results. Uh, but there's another player in all of this, and it's called the IATA. IATA? Is that it? IATA. <laughs> IATA. IATA. Is that really how you pronounce it? IATA. It is. Yeah, Jeff, IATA. Before, this shows my how out of depth I am. Before this week, I had never heard of IATA. <laughs> but it seems like on paper, they sort of control everything. So first things first, what is the IATA? 
Uh, IATA is the global authority on the rules that guide aviation. Uh, it governs air cargo, passenger traffic, all of it. Uh, they set standards that ensure smooth, consistent rules for pilots and planes and air traffic control are moved safely around the world. And they're the lobbying agency for, you know, I think 300 airlines, so you know, 95% of global traffic or something like that. So uh, what it also means is they have a significant voice in all the policy. They're closely intertwined with all aspects with aviation. So it's also, you know, border control. Uh, and to be clear, they don't set health or border policies, right? I mean, countries do these governing bodies. You know, the, I think we'll probably talk about a few governing bodies today that have to make decisions, but IATA is the lobbying agency is trying to influence them uh, to make travel smooth. Uh, I mean, often the policy is created by a government, but it's an airline employee who's asked to, uh, who is tasked with checking a passport or in today's conversation, a health passport. So uh, airlines certainly have a, a very heavy voice and the voice comes from IATA. And how does that relate to, to something like CLEAR? Uh, CLEAR emerged from September 11 and it's a domestic US deal. Um, and it was a solution to a security threat. So the dilemma was uh, how to get the 99.9% .9 of passengers through airports smoothly while diligently screening identities to catch terrorist threats. Uh, COVID's a health scare rather than a security scare, but the logistical dilemma is the same uh, or very similar. So, so CLEAR has a, clear, a domestic infrastructure in place already to step in and help solve this. Uh, it's in a very logical position to expand on its identification process through TSA by just adding a health pass element. So uh, CLEAR actually started building its health pass platform pre-COVID, uh, so they were even further ahead of that. It was kind of a slow ancillary thing they were working on. Uh, but of course, getting health records is a very challenging task in the U.S. and, and a very different one than simply identifying uh, who a person is. And since this is technology and it's America, that means there are uh, probably a billion other companies that are trying to <laughs> get in and chip off some of Clear's established position. They, they must not be the only ones who are trying to kind of win this game, right? No, they're, they're, it's it's a race right now who can get it first and where. Uh, there's Clear's Health Pass, there's IATA's Travel Pass, there's Common Pass, a product that was built by World Economic Forum, uh, the IBM Digital Health Pass, the V Health. Um, you mentioned in the intro, Verifly. Uh, I used them in June when I was going to Roatan. Uh, it was a three-hour waste of time uploading pictures and documents. And when I got there, uh, American Airlines at the check-in process, the gate agents never checked. Uh, and I asked why, because I'm a curious travel industry geek. And they told me they were actually instructed not to bother clogging up the boarding process for something that's meaningless and too early in concept. So uh, there are a lot of players in the space and nobody's really clearly winning yet. And as always, um, you know, it, it falls to the people in the front line at the at like whatever the front desk is to actually enforce all of this, which I'm sure just complicates it, complicates it to no end. It, it seems like, and just reading a little bit about uh, this over the last week or so, that there, there's a feeling amongst airline executives, not all of them, but a decent number of them, that this they don't think this will kill clear that they've got their own thing and they're also, you know, horizontally integrated in other industries. Uh, everyone's challenge is getting government acceptance. Uh, I think IATA has engagement with Singapore, uh, but as a city state, Singapore is kind of vertically integrated in travel. 
um, but not much more beyond that. And I, I think that it, it feels like the model will be that governments like the U.S. will set guidelines and business requirements and technical standards, and companies will either meet them or they won't. So, you know, you have room for multiple players, and IATA has the advantage of being part of the airlines, but they also have a long, terrible history and reputation in technical issues, as well as being bloated and, and perceived as kind of super expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think if anyone's positioned to succeed globally, though, it probably is IATA. Right? IATA's Travel Pass is a mobile app that can already verify a range of COVID test results and uh, digital vaccine certificates. Uh, it validates vaccines, vaccine certificates right now in 52 countries. And by the end of the year, 74 or 75 countries. So I think you also said something that's very important, too, about it will be the biggest governments like the U.S. or companies like J.P. Morgan, uh, they'll simply make uh, a statement or a policy internally, and that really will set the tone for everyone else. Like J.P. Morgan decided a couple of weeks ago that uh, only vaccinated employees are eligible for company travel, right? I mean, that's not a policy anywhere else yet, but when the biggest bank in the U.S. comes out with that as a policy, you can see others will watch, see how it goes and follow. I think similarly, uh, whatever programs the U.S. embraces, uh, the rest of the world will have a pretty strong incentive to follow. Speaking of the rest of the world, the, the list of countries that have agreed to use IATA's travel pass is not exactly the world's leading democracies. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the PR issues that it's kind of dealing with. It's like, it, you know, it's mainly authoritarian countries who don't really have to ask people for their health records or permission to, to share private data, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Two countries that were first to join IATA's travel pass uh, are, were Singapore and the United Arab Emirates. And these are two small countries whose economies rely heavily on international traffic. Uh, UN World Tourism Organization published something like uh, travel internationally is still down 67% compared to 2019. So it would make sense that a Singapore and a UAE, that can, you know, these are the crossroads of global flight, uh, that they would be first to jump on. And more importantly, though, uh, those two countries don't have to ask permission from their citizens to collect and share personal health records. Uh, and as much sense as that might make, uh, think about how fiercely just the subject of vaccination has become in the U.S. Now, imagine a, a politician also suggesting to add on to that uh, a, a mandate where uh, the U.S. government could collect all medical records and distribute them at will, right? Imagine a politician even trying to go that route. Well, it's kind of that requirement that's necessary uh, for a central repository uh, like you see in China and some of these other countries. And yeah, and I mean, this is a whole separate episode about like a government collecting that data versus say Google or Apple collecting that data and how people complain about it, but kind of Put up with it and don't really have a problem as long as they, their app can download on, on you know in 10 seconds or less you know one of the things that i don't get about the industry's refusal to lobby a government on state and on the state and federal level and, and maybe they are doing this and i just don't know it is i i don't know why travel companies of all stripes hotel companies the airlines anybody involved in travel and hospitality aren't pressuring politicians on those levels saying, look, a passport makes everything related to our industry 
including tourism and business travel to our state or our region way easier. I mean, I can't think of states where that makes more sense than say Florida or New York or Texas even. You know, healthier, safer environments mean healthier, safer environments to interact and spend money. So I I I always wonder yeah, a little bit. I wonder why the the I mean, it's easy saying this when you have these massive industries at play here and all these technologies and stakeholders and players, but I wonder why we don't see more political force being used. Uh, AHLA is the group that governs uh, or represents the hotel industry in the U.S. And I, I think your observation's right that you have not seen a lot of attention from them on this particular subject. In in their defense, though, uh, AHLA has been focused, you know, almost all of its lobbying voice on getting financial assistance for the owners that have been, you know, trying not to go belly up during COVID. And uh, helping out to get relief for the millions of unemployed hotel workers, right? Those things have really drawn the majority of the lobbying effort domestically. Uh, so for the most part, states haven't restricted inbound travelers uh, based on residency since the early days of COVID, right? I think there was a period of time when to go to New York, uh, you couldn't get into the state of New York if you were coming from and again, I don't remember exactly, but West Virginia or Ohio or something, but New Jersey was okay, right? There was a period of time when states were doing that, but that was pretty short-lived and thankfully. Uh, it would it would add another layer uh, of, of complexity to something that's already pretty broken. But some of the decisions that do need to be made from an international level, right? Getting consistency from country to country is a total necessity to save international travel from a permanent change. If governments can't align on some consistent health policies, the industry faces a generational step backward. Uh, and some of the decisions are very serious, right? Countries have to decide which vaccines qualify, uh, for how long, one dose or two. Uh, they determine what constitutes proof of vaccine, right? Singapore, you mentioned earlier, they use a blockchain technology to identify the health records of every individual citizen. Uh, the U.S., hands out a piece of paper with a nurse's handwritten signature. And so you also have to determine from border to border uh, what counts as proof. Uh, but beyond the harder issues like those, uh, there is a web of crazy rules that have evolved over the last 18 months of knee-jerk reactions. Uh, and, and these really need to be solved. Uh, like Austria, for example. Austria allows visitors who are fully vaccinated with Sinovac to enter the country. But Sinovac is not approved by the governing body to check into hotels. So you can fly from Beijing to Vienna tomorrow, get through customs and border control, and then be homeless for 14 days. So I mean, that's the kind of silliness that really has to be brought under control. I had a released a study uh, recently that said a few things, a few interesting things. 67% of respondents felt that most country borders should be open now, and that's up. Uh, like 10 or 12 percentage points from uh, like earlier this summer. Um, 64% of respondents felt that the border closures are unnecessary. 73% responded that their quality of life is suffering. And then the big one, 77% see the inconvenience as a barrier to travel. Now, people have been complaining about travel inconveniences since the the, the wheel was invented. So it, you know, your percentages are never going to the, you know, it's never going to be single digits as far as uh, people's dissatisfaction. Um, what do you think this, what, what did you get out of this survey? 
No, you're, you're right. It's in a way it's like asking people whether they think their pay is sufficient. You know, the answer doesn't matter who you ask or when in any period of time, it's the answer is no, of course not. But you're right. People are, are, they're fed up with the unnecessarily complex and the inconsistent rules that are out there. And I think the survey serves a, a few purposes, not, not least of which is to push governing bodies to act quickly to get a set of health pass standards in place. Uh, I, mean, I think in, in the past few weeks, the G7 announced that it would align its border policies. And I mean, that's a major step forward. Uh, they created a set of seven guiding principles that the seven members uh, would abide to or strive to. And uh, they range from sustainability standards to health policies like we're talking about right now. And it's, it's a very ambitious list, which frankly gives me a little concern. Right, to solve all the world's biggest problems simultaneously. That's a pretty big ask. Uh, so I hope they'll prioritize the health pass initiative right away, right? Because we got to get people moving across borders. But uh, so IATA supported uh, the G7 approach, but I think it made a simpler set of recommendations or principles for governments to consider also uh, as a framework for reopening borders. And vaccines, the five principles, right? I'm not going to get these in, in any particular priority order, but vaccines should be made available as quickly as possible to people. Vaccinated travelers shouldn't face barriers to travel. Testing should enable uh, those with access, or sorry, without access to vaccines to travel without quarantine. Um, antigen tests are key to cost-effective convenient testing regimes, and governments should pay for the testing so it's not an economic barrier to getting people moving again, right? Those are also pretty lofty, but it's kind of table stakes to get a health pass in place across borders. So as simple as those might sound or as complex as those might sound, getting 200 countries to agree to it, to anything is ambitious. Uh, I think the most realistic reason for optimism is uh, that right now the G7, so you're talking about the US, Canada, UK, France, Italy, Germany, and Japan, uh, for that group to execute on an aligned set of travel policies, uh, they comprise two thirds of global, global GDP. So if you can just get the G7 to do something like this, and it seems like that's really on the precipice and the world, the rest of the world may fall in line. A year from now, hopefully COVID will, will have died down uh, a little bit, it already has. We're, already, we're living in an era where we're, we're kind of, we're stopping, using we stopped using the term um post pandemic and i think we're using terms that sort of reflect that this is going to be the reality of travel in this decade right. or this century or just our new our new lives is that if it, even if it isn't covid it's going to be something else and that vax passports of one kind or another are going to i don't know if an inevitability is is the right way to describe it but but we're headed this way one way or the other. Where, where do you think we sit a year from now? You know, I think in terms of the verbiage, right, I thought you were about to use the word endemic, and it, which is actually kind of a funny word when you think endemic actually means endless. But it's, it's something that's just here to stay. It's something we're going to live with. And it's almost like the world has woken up to viruses have always been here, but now we're hyper aware of it. And and vaccinations in the travel world are nothing new either, uh, but they have been limited mainly to uh, 
you know, tropical areas where disease is rampant. And like, if you looked at my travel vaccine passport, which I've carried for the last 15 years of my life, I have dozens of, you know, of vaccines from, you know, if you want to go to India, you need a typhoid vaccine. You need yellow fever vaccine, uh, a couple times, a couple types of hepatitis, or, you know, if you want to go into the Amazon when I did that a couple of years ago. Right. So I, I think for the really aggressively traveling world, this is nothing new. I think this is for the big masses who were used to going to places that didn't require uh, vaccines, didn't seem to have a real health scare. Uh, this has brought them into that map. And, and so the complexity that was there before uh, of what vaccines do I need if I go to a kind of an unsavory place, the onus then was on the traveler to be smart. Uh, I think what we're seeing here is we're shifting that responsibility off the traveler and really being hyper-managed by governments because of the way vi the virus moves across borders indiscriminately. Jeff, we did it, episode one. Uh, and as we close, hopefully every episode uh, of No Show, uh, the question question of the episode, question of the week for you. And this one's super simple. Uh, your favorite airport in the domestic US. Oh, domestic. You know, I was about to say Beijing when you said favorite airport. The architect is amazing, but I can't do that. All right, in the United States. So I haven't been there. I can't use the new TSA terminal at LaGuardia. I can't use that because I haven't been there yet. Damn COVID. Uh, Dayton International Airport in Ohio. I love it. I love it when the Midwestern cities put international. Des Moines does the, the same thing. <laughs> they, they put international. And I get it because there's Canadian flights and, and probably right. flights to Mexico. But then Des Moines does this crazy thing where they they... they forever it was like a british woman's voice <laughs> <laughs> announcing like date changes and, and stuff what what do you love about Dave? i come from cincinnati so i go to southern ohio on a fairly frequent basis to visit uh, to visit family and i can either fly into cbg which is kind of built like Atlanta Hartsfield. It's a miniature version of Atlanta uh, where you've got big spread out concourses and you got to take trains back right Dayton I can get almost as close to where I'm going to visit family. And I'm six minutes from curb to airplane, right in. Never a line, never a problem. TSA, walk right through. Most convenient airport in the U.S. Well, there you have it, folks. Jeff, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Great show. Talk to you soon. Thank you.